Welcome to the Simply People Podcast with Simply People founder and your host, Danny Clark. Welcome to the Simply People Podcast, the show that brings you the people behind particular subjects, organizations, or stories. I'm Danny Clark, and today we're talking all things health, nutrition, and supplements with Dr. Michael Barnish. Welcome to the show, Michael. His, Michael's here to talk about health, his passion for supplementation and nutrition. Thanks for joining me, Michael. No, thanks for having me, Danny. I really appreciate you having me on uh, the podcast today. Thanks for taking the time. So we'll jump straight in if that's okay. Um, first question generally would always be, what are you up to at the moment? Well, uh, super busy post uh, the Christmas period. Uh, huge surge actually in patients uh, wanting help with their health. So I have seen a quite a busy uh, p- patient diary at the moment, um, but also I've got quite a few exciting projects on with Revive who I work for. Um, help, uh, helping roll out some of their new exciting 2021 ventures, um, some new nutrients that we're going to be offering uh, in clinics. Oh, mate, sounds really good. So, so what is your role with Revive, if you don't mind me asking? Um, so I'm the head of genetics and nutrition for Revive. It's a global company, so um, it's, it's quite a busy uh, role, as you can imagine. Uh, so as a medical doctor, um, I advise and support from a medical point of view the company and its ventures around genetics and nutrition i actually currently sit as the uk's medical director as well for their uh, operations here in the uk so so someone that's a bit of a, a numpty like me what, what what do you mean when you look at talking about nutrition and genetics what 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 does that mean yeah so uh, going back to the basics uh nutrients are the things that uh our food is compro- pro- uh, you know made up of and absolutely uh essential for us to work as a human body and um, so the nutrition side of things is really looking at uh, and i know we'll discuss it later but supplementation good uh, aspects to food the bad aspects to food tends to come along uh with a lot of lifestyle uh, medicine as well and the genetic side of it is, uh, I mean, the area of genetics that I practice is, is the lifestyle genetics, which is looking really at um, your genetic weaknesses or strengths, really, around nutrition, around lifestyle-based uh, interventions. Because, you know, we all have genetic, uh, we don't all have a perfect set of genes. Uh, I'm not talking about the ones whether you're blue, blue-eyed or brown-eyed or, you know, from a health point of view, the sort of biology can be interrupted and it's good to know about that interruption sometimes because if you know about it you can correct it and therefore um, hopefully keep things at bay so although the title is uh, genetics and nutrition I think you know um, my specialty really is preventative health stopping people getting diseases or trying to sort of limit progression of disease when people have it so that's that's what I sort of specialize in at the moment. That's amazing. So where do you think this interest came from? Your interest in genetics and preventative health. Is there a story behind that? Is, is there something that's driven this? Passion? Yeah, I think um, there's a frustration uh, behind it. Um, so I, I've always been very interested in science, sciences, science and history are my two uh, passions, really. But science uh, always fascinated and genetics really was probably sparked quite early on because I always wondered why I had uh, this color hair and this uh, color eyes and which what where did I get it from and I was very interested in family trees and looking at pictures and seeing what I've inherited so I was a bit of a geek in that sense but always interested in genetics and I did um, sort of a, a pre-med year before I, I did my medical degree 
uh, of which was a big chunk of genetics and just really very interesting stuff. And I always knew that one day I wanted to work with genetics in terms of uh, managing diseases as a doctor. I think, um, how did I get to, to doing that was more of a frustration. I, I was um, a trainee GP, uh, GP registrar, so not far off the, the final cusp there. Um, and I was a bit frustrated, really, because I felt limited um, in 10 minute consultations. I wasn't really changing much. I was throwing things at problems and hoping that they'll mask for a little bit so they didn't come back to see me. And I know it's a frustration for a lot of my GP colleagues. And we, we, you know, as all doctors, we want to help people. And I think I took a big plunge and thought, well, actually, let's gamble on this. Let's see if I can build a career on doing what I want to practice, how I want to practice medicine, I suppose. And that was actually getting, you know, looking at early signs and stopping things there and then. And, you know, I used to prescribe staircase runs to my patients in general practice because <laughs> they didn't have a gym membership. But it was cold and wintry outside and, and you know, it was in a, po- a, a poor area. And, you know, I used to be like, right, this week then we're going to do 10 flights of stairs a day and we're going to build up. And do you know what? It worked. And, you know, I had a great relationship with some of the patients that it worked with. So I think it was a bit of frustration on on how we, you know, the reactive way we practice medicine with a passion for really looking at the biochemical stuff and and really figuring out what the cause is and therefore reversing the root cause as opposed to masking it. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's actually funny, funny to say that. It's actually a, a really interesting area that I've kind of looked at in terms of proactive management of not necessarily health from a, a clinical perspective, but very much health and safety so my background is very much health and safety so I've always tried to introduce things to prevent situations as opposed to wait for an accident or an incident to occur to then deal with the aftermath of, of that issue so yeah it's, it's actually really interesting and do you think that's something that we are moving more towards then in terms of pre- pre- preventative health from a from a community perspective or do you think we're still there's still quite a way to go I think there's definitely still a long way to go I think what's interesting is there is a big shift and you know you only have to see the wellness industry grow um to you know multi-billion dollar industry and it's grown very very quickly genetic industries iv industries have all grown quite quickly i think the birth of having information everyone now having as much information as they could ever get hold of coupled with some frustrations sometimes as well or or, or experiences there is a shift it's not you know it, it would be great one day. And I'd, if anyone's listening from the Department of Health and Social Health, I'll happily help. But um, to just change things up a little bit, I think um, the NHS is an amazing thing. It's a free healthcare service, but it is falling behind on cancer survival. It's falling behind quite, I think it's 40 something on the list of global cancer survivals and things like that. So the, there is an adaptation that needs to happen. And I believe that prevention would help massively. So if you, was, if you had a, a 60 second chance meeting with the guys at the Department of Health, so you happen to step into an elevator one day in London to put you on the spot and you had just a few floors to pitch what you'd, what you'd change, what do you think you'd say? Well, I'd have to ask for a lot of money. To pay, <laughs> so I don't know whether it would go down very well. Um, but yeah, I, I think... You know, it would be it would be that, I, you know, I'd literally tell them that reactive medicine 
you know, it's costing us a fortune at the end yeah. of it. Always talk about how much the NHS costs, how much a bed costs in hospital. What if we just had amazing education programs right from you know reception class all the way through your um, schooling, you know, to know about all these things, to know what to eat? Because let's face it, with a standard Western diet or the standard modern diet nowadays is far from healthy. And we, you know, I hear all the time, oh, I have a healthy diet. A lot of my patients say that, but when we look at it there is definitely issues there. And I think even just, you know, down to education, hospital, I think I'd, I'd absolutely attack hospital food first to be like, just, you know, cheap contracts are not the way to go. If you want people out of that hospital, feed them vegetable soup, yeah. <laughs> not, not a, a, a cheese and onion pie. On the <laughs> uh, you know, I laugh because I, see, I, see, I used to see it yeah. daily. Yeah. And I know the government pledged recently to change that. And I actually have contacted the Department of Health and Social Care to see if I can help. But um, we'll see if they take me up on it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good point, actually. And actually, it's it's kind of the, com- the, the complete opposite of what a healthy meal would be is cheese and onion pies, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure it's fine for a cheap treat and there is some nutrition in there, but have it with uh, a lot of vegetables and as a treat, not as a staple on the stroke ward or cardiovascular <laughs> ward. It's probably not where we need to go. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So your frustrations lead you to, to leave the NHS, I guess, um, and, and join Revive. Well, yeah, so um, I was actually doing a little bit with Revive um, just as a, as a bit of a Saturday job, in all honesty, right at the beginning. And that really opens the world up to me um very quickly i became a trainer but i was um i was gp trainee and the other frustration of being a gp trainee is that you do a lot of time not in the gp practices but sort of as um service provision uh, in other specialties which is good to get an exposure to but not for the amount of time that i suppose you have to sometimes six months etc yeah um, and yeah i just saw the opportunity to be able to leave the NHS and it wasn't because I hated the NHS it was because I wanted to explore practicing medicine in the way I wanted to and I took the gamble I took the risk everyone you know you can imagine what uh, <laughs> my, my parents don't were like do oh, you know why don't you just wait a year you know less than a year to get the qualification and then yeah. decide what you're going to do but you know deep down inside I knew I didn't want to practice general practice in that way and so I, you know, fine, I'm not uh, a NHS qualified GP, but I pretty much stay up to date and practice in the general practitioner way, just do different things um, that works just as well um, yeah. and uh, get a good job satisfaction from it. Which I guess is important and, and job satisfaction is key. You, you can, if you're frustrated with your role, then you don't want to be spending the next 40 odd years being frustrated, I guess. Yeah, and as long as the patients are getting the outcomes that they need from a health point of view, I think there's no no danger to that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be learned. And, you know, this whole journey has made me learn, you know, so much more than probably my university years. Just, you know, put, putting that on top of that is quite a, quite a challenge, but a really good one. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. So nutrition and, and diet and its role within, within healthcare. Um, you mentioned that it's been a particular interest in healthy diets with the patients that you saw and how potentially you've not mentioned that. So I will put words into your mouth, how a healthy diet impacts on their lifestyle. Um, and, and you've had some of those conversations. What is it do you think that, that 
do you think it is predominantly a, an education thing that, that that people kind of choose not to or, or don't have a, a, a healthy nutritious diet yeah I think it's I think there is an ignorance there and I was just as guilty um you know you eat what everyone else eats and um as long as it's not full of badness it, you think it's good but when you, when you sort of go down to the science of it, of what the body needs, especially when you've got genetic weaknesses and you know blood markers are all over the place, even though you don't have any symptoms yet, the you know the, the actual nutrients in the food that's where the information is. And what we're we're now living in the world, and I suppose the UK isn't quite as bad as some you know in the EU isn't quite as bad as the US, for example. But we're, we're finding food is less nutritionally dense whether it's because of farming techniques or whether it's because, um, you know, it's processed, but also we're, you know, we're, we're coupled that with more exposure to unnatural things. So more chemicals, more pollution, more um, radiation and things like this. So, you know, the human body was designed a long time ago, about 250,000 years ago. It's a perfectly evolved um, biological system for a, you know, a very different environment, you know, an archaic African savanna type environment. So you can imagine generation on generation, with, you know, with the technological advances, we have a lot more challenges to face biologically. And I think nutrition hasn't caught up. And in fact, what we're doing is making things more convenient and actually foregoing that nutrition. And that's why, that's my belief, why we're seeing diseases, problems coming in a lot younger, why, you know, we, we have a lot more issues um, from a health point of view. It's, it's quite normal now to talk about your kids' allergies or, mm. you, know, um, you, you know, your grandparents' cancers and things. And I, I think we've gone past that, that limit now. We need to draw back yeah. the nutrition aspect of it. And, you know, ultimately we are what we eat. Uh, to take a great example, you know, industrial, industrial farming involves antibiotic use to fatten up the produce. It's a great uh, commercial thing. Farmers get more money um, and therefore could feed their families more. But, you know, antibiotics kill the microbiome. Now, we get most of our B12 nowadays from red meat. But if we give uh, antibiotics to that cow, you know, the antibacterials will kill the bacteria that make the B12 in its stomach. So, your, your steak, you're thinking, oh, I've got my B12 this week. You might not be getting it. Uh, farmed fish is a great example of not having as much omega-3 because it doesn't get, it gets its omega-3 from plankton and not corn. So there, there is, you know, there is always a cost to convenience and to, to modern living. And, you know, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Um, but here it's a hard, it's hard work trying to eat properly. Um, yeah. And I, I do a good job of it myself, but you know it's it's hard, especially for patients that maybe don't have the income to buy organic or the knowledge and things like that. So I definitely think there's an education aspect, and that could be drummed in right early, quite uh, drummed in quite early on, really, in curriculums. Absolutely, I think that's a, a really good valid point. One question I'll, I'll have on on with regards to nutrition and diets, then, Michael, if it's okay, is your perspective um, on on these these new diets or diets that seem to be growing in popularity, plant-based, um, I won't use vegan, but plant-based and plant-focused diets that, that people tend to follow. I, I try and follow it at, at times. Um, vegetarian, pescatarians, etc. And, and then you've got the more, I was going to say specialised diets where people go for ketos and Atkins and things like that. Uh, and it'd be good to get from your perspective on what is a nutritious, balanced 
well, diet, it's, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's a bit different for everyone. Um, <laughs> obviously, genetics being at play there. But, you know, when we we have a lot of these fad diets around that always come in, you know, you mentioned quite a few there. I think the issue is people get better on these diets. So you get a lot of publicity. And I think the reason they get better is um, you'll find some people get better, some people get worse. And I think that the reason they get better is because it cuts out one of the issues that we have <laughs> the modern diet usually. So keto cuts out refined carbohydrates, plant-based cuts out um, over-industrialized meats, <laughs> things like that. So there is something there. Now, you know, the way I see it, it, it does depend on on your biomarkers and your biology at the time and your lifestyle. But, you know, we are designed to eat both. I've done complete plant-based eating. Um, I still, all, everyone always uh, says when they order something, uh, they are always, you know, confusing. Um, I thought you were vegan, Michael. I'm like, I've not, not been vegan for three years and I did it for two weeks. But, you know, um, <laughs> It's a yeah, so you know, at, at the moment, um, for example, I have just a really good balance. So the, the key is, I think, with diet is to not have too much of anything, uh, apart from vegetables. I think um, is the exception. the The trick is to really um, to nurture the biology is to eat more plants. The problem is we eat more too. I think the modern issue is that we eat too many refined carbohydrates and sugars we have too much in the way of industrially farmed animals in our diet as well. So people are having animals with every meal now, whether it's dairy, chicken, fish, uh, eggs, it comes with every meal now, breakfast, lunch, and tea. And you know, that they're, they're quite taxing on the body from a digestive point of view, but also it can raise certain biomarkers that can cause inflammation. So bringing that back to a time when meat wasn't was expensive and it wasn't on accessible and it was good quality. I think trying to have that balance is, is more important. So, you know, an 80, 20% between plant and an animal, uh, not having animals with every meal or dairy with every drink and things like that is, is yeah. a key, a key uh, first step really to balancing things out. So I, you know, diets are interesting and, you know, sometimes they'll work for some people, but, you know, uh, absolutely depends on your genetic makeup and your current health as well as to whether you'll see a benefit from them. I think what you really need to do is change that balance back to a more natural human balance of what we may have expected to do back on that savannah. Um, and, you know, forgetting we're eating muscle meat, we didn't eat muscle meat, that was probably left over for the vultures and everyone else. We, were, we, we ate the liver, the brain, the heart, the, the offal, because it was so nutritional, you know, uh, mm. nutritionally rich. Um, so there's been, even since the 1970s, a massive shift in uh, offal consumption. We hardly eat any of it at the moment, and we're missing out on huge... Um, micro micronutrients like nucleotides and uh, your vitamin a your folate all your b vitamins it's really rich in these foods now i personally can't face it so i have free dried grass-fed lamb offal in a capsule um there you go <laughs> yeah no that's 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 really interesting actually and i wouldn't have naturally thought of the offal because like you say the offal seems to be the waste products now it's the byproducts of the let's get the, the muscle meat let's get the protein reverse of you know of the other mm. side and, and that's the other thing people are like oh i'm working out i need to build muscle i need protein 
but it has to come from an animal. It can't be the amino acid protein. There is such a confusion out there. And I think, you know, a, a lot of industries, I think the uh, tobacco industry once did it, put confusion out there. You'll con- get people continue to smoke. Um, yeah. uh, and you'll see it with eggs. Eggs are a great example of confusion. Uh, <laughs> eggs raise your cholesterol. I can't have eggs. But yet they're one of the most nutritionally dense foods you could eat. So, you know, it's, it's about that balance. So from a diet point of view, I always like to do a personalized approach, but certainly that, that you know, we are omnivores. There has to be a little bit of nutrition. If you are vegan, you will have to supplement with certain foods, definitely. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So actually on on, on that point, um, just to ask you again, another question around the, the nutrition and the supplementation is, is where you think supplementation plays a part or how it, it supplementation plays a part in a, in a diet and whether if somebody was to follow more of a nutritionally balanced meal plan, the 80, 20 rule, et cetera, and eating, maybe going out and eating kidneys, livers, brains, and things like that from the animals occasionally, um, where supplementation would play a part in that balanced nutritious. Yeah. Diet. I think um, the supplementation comes in when we look at the environment we live in now. So the increased exposure to chemicals, to stress, <laughs> poor sleep, blue light, um, you know, if you fly regularly, the, the cosmic radiation is a lot higher up there. So there's all these things that we're exposed to, whether it's occupational, you know, hairdressers is a prime example with all the, the products they're using every day and inhaling. You know, we're, we're eating, we're inhaling, we're drinking these chemicals, these byproducts into the body, whether it's from plastic. And, you know, it's all around us that there's, 50,000 new chemicals in the last so many years and I think 4% are tested on long-term health so that you know we we do have this attack and um, you know I, I'm I love my life I love my house I'm not going to forgo it and live in a cave absolutely not but you know and when food isn't as red you know isn't as nutritional as it should be I think supplementation fills in the gap and you know let's face it we're not all going to start being cave dwellers again we're going to continue going forward so let's utilize the technology that we do have we're you know it's amazing that we can supplement orally intravenously through our skin to preserve health and you know preserve that sort of um to be anti-aging in some senses as well now i think you know there's a huge part of that uh, to play in genetics as well if you do have a genetic weakness supplementing might be the the key to, to uh, sort of ironing that out of course, diet is the best way to get your nutrients in the most natural way and the safest way. But, you know, when it can't be achieved or where, it, whether, where it's unlikely to be achieved and with someone that has, is a hairdresser or an, a, a, an air attendant or, you know, um, someone that's exposed to chemicals, which many of us are, then it does fill in that gap. That's why, um, you know, IV nutrition is sometimes with revive is sometimes a solution I use for my patients because, you know, it, it allows me to quickly, nutri- you know, uh, make someone quite nutritionally dense. Yeah. Often it helps with their, um, you know, immediate management. Um, but it's a good big dose of nutrition that can be uh, helpful. And there's a lot of research that still needs to be done in, to make this into conventional medicine. You know, they practice evidence-based medicine, this is a little bit more of experience-based medicine, which doesn't get as much um, limelight, and that's fine. Um, but 
you know, at the end of the day, it's about getting those patient outcomes anyway. And, and really looking at the big picture, I think, you know, those chemicals are always forgotten about, never the cause of anything. Yeah. It's, you know, you only have to see trends in um, people younger and younger getting cancer, diabetes, heart disease, kids becoming more allergic to things. It is absolutely having an impact. And if you yeah. like and have bad antioxidant enzymes in the body, you know, it will affect you earlier than someone that doesn't, uh, especially if that have that exposure. Yeah. Is there such a thing then as over supplementation? Can you have too much? Yeah. Too so, many supplements? Yeah. Certain nutrients you can get toxic on if they're fat soluble. So it tends to be stored in fat. You can retain too much of it and it can cause adverse events. Some, sometimes supplements can be made uh, in ways where, you know, they have binders and other additives and things like that to, to make them palatable and things like that. So they can sometimes be, uh, um, not tolerated by certain people. And then, you know, there's the other side of it is that supplements aren't as regulated, um, as, as sometimes, uh, they are in other countries. Um, but actually, you know, you can sell someone this, the internet's a, a great thing, but a dangerous thing as well. And people are yeah. like, and sometimes I get to a patient and they're on everything. <laughs> I'm like, you take more supplements than I do. And I do take a lot, but mine are very, very, you know, I've got a lot of knowledge behind them. Yeah. Uh, and I do have some bad genetics uh, at play as well. So, you know, it's, it really is. Um, I think that there can be, you can get lost in that. And some people do take too much. And sometimes it can cause more of an issue. If you've got a mold illness, for example, you don't know you've got it you can become very sensitive to certain things. And sometimes the supplementation can be making things worse. Sometimes the things that bind to the heavy metals can help it push into the brain. You know, these things need to be sort of thought about. So although supplementation is great, you know, supplementing with care and with thought is great. Uh, It it is, um, you know, is encouraged for sure. Yeah. It sounds like one of the first steps that people should take, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to be one of them, is to to have this biomarker to understand actually what supplements do I need, what what what's my genetic makeup. Because I think it's one of those things growing up over the years, when things happen within family histories and things like that, and people say, oh, it's just bad genes, it's it's just genetics, it's hereditary. Your father had it, therefore you'll get it naturally. Um, so just deal with it. It's I, I liken it to the old occupational hazards where people would do certain jobs and go, it's just one of those occupational things. It's just what happens when you're a welder or when you're a, an auto repair, uh, and, working in an auto repair shop. It's just one of these things. But actually what, you, what, what I'm getting from you is that the science suggests that's surprisingly not actually the case. And actually you're an individual. Let's actually understand how your genetics work to then identify what the best course of action would be for, for someone like myself. Yeah, and the genetics isn't be all and end all because we then have epigenetics, which is the chemistry environment around gene expression turning up. Imagine a dimmer switch, let's turn that gene up or turn it down. So if it's an obesity gene, it can be switched on quite high or it could be switched on quite low. So it's not your fate necessarily either, which is interesting. Um, And that's where, you know, lifestyle intervention really does come into play because we know that it does influence quite massively your genetic code. So, you know, what I like to do and what we do with Revive is, you have your genetics done. We then follow that up with regular throughout the year blood testing, which are your biomarkers. So I can see what you're, you know, you say you've got um, uh, 
an insufficient, you know, not the perfect working uh, methylation genes. I can then see if you're activating your B12 or not. Is, you know, is your lifestyle actually presenting itself on a blood panel and then making those tweaks with that information? And, you know, that comes back to that proactive health approach. You start doing that way in advance of getting any symptoms because your symptoms come quite far down the line often. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's the stuff that I'm following that we're probably not quite ready yet, but cancer um, uh, liquid biopsy tests where we could take a sample of blood and you can say what percentage of uh, certain tumors you can do 50 different cancers in one blood sample and see if you've got any circulating tiny you know amount of dna for that cancer yeah and you do it you know you catch it early we're not quite ready for that in in the sort of um in this field i think there's a bit more work to be done but actually what's interesting is if i had cancer now i would want that doing with my oncologist to check that my lung cancer is not not lymphatic in nature or not some other cancer in nature. So the treatment is much better for me. So, you know, this proactive approach, it always comes comes back to that really. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's just, uh, I suppose it's just one of those hard lessons to, to kind of understand really. It's, it's so early, but actually it's still a tough conversation to turn around somebody and say out of these 50 tests that you've, or 50 markers, that, or 50, cancers that we've had as part of this test there are symptoms or indications that you've got two three four but i suppose as a medical practitioner that's probably the conversation that you would have been having but just further down the line once people notice a lump or or or, or. yeah and you'd be having it and saying your survival is this whereas if you saying well you've got about one percent of um yeah cancer dna going that let's have a look for it let's cut it out and then you can go on your way and change the lifestyle you know this is where the future is of proactive medicine yeah. you'll see a lot of this i think uh, the nhs will do a pilot this year on on that liquid biopsy within oncology um we're not quite ready for it in the preventative healthcare industry i don't think um i think there needs to be some tighter parameters there but yeah. you know stuff that i watch very closely because you know having that option for patients because people do worry especially if you've got um family history having those options i'd like one of those done every year um because i'd rather catch it before yeah. you even cut out a tumor we're talking you know before the tumor even identifies itself perhaps there's some immune therapy that can be done um in the future you know quite exciting no that does sound really exciting to be fair and certainly something that's worth worth following up on and i'll keep an eye on your linkedin posts and, and what you're looking at and sharing <laughs> And try and keep myself educated that way. Well, it will think, be interested to see the NHS's uh, pilot on that, and so if, um, I'm sure I'll, I'll comment on that as it's been done throughout the year. And then later on, when it becomes available through through Revive or your other organisation, then then you'll be able to kind of make that available as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that's going to be a few years off um, for the non-cancer patients. I think this will develop as a cancer. Uh, as part of the cancer diagnosis pathway to make sure that treatment is appropriate for that cancer. I think uh, we will, you know, the the sort of preventative surveillance aspect of it, I think it's a few years off. Yeah, it needs a bit of tidying up. Um, But probably by that point, there's probably 240 (laughs) cancers. So, you know. And we've probably, we've engineered most of them in ourselves in in our push towards manufacturing cheaper and larger volumes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> exactly and, you know people where my genetics patients some people are reluctant to have their genes because they 
they don't understand that it's not that it's the you know sometimes they're like well I'd rather not know that that's my fate. Yeah. But we're talking about how you interact with nutrients. So actually, it's more empowering. Knowledge is power, and certainly, you know, all we truly have really is our health. So it, yeah. it's something that is uh, worth looking into if you care about your health. Do you think it's a generational thing then? In this ostrich approach to people burying their heads, or do you think it's an environmental aspect? So do you think it's one of those things that the older generations, without being discriminatory, of course, tend to have that approach of just get on with it? Or do you think it's the cult, the environment that someone's raising that says, we don't talk about those things? Yeah, I, I think um, we have been conditioned since birth to, um, you know, there's two two things. I think we've been conditioned at birth that it, it's okay to have, you know, it's acceptable to have a minor illness that you just can manage and you live with. And I think the other Thing is that the responsibility of your health is on your is with your GP or your doctor and not with you um, and I think part of that is because of that reactive model part of it is just culture um, you know you know you've sat on a bus and heard two old ladies chatting about what they what their ailments are and um, you know uh, who's got what and who's been to see see what and also at the other end of the spectrum you you know you see pet parents of young children say oh mine's got asthma oh mine went to this doctor you should go and see this one for your your child's allergy so it's become I, I do think um we are conditioned to sort of not necessarily take full responsibility of our healthcare. we've got a great free healthcare service out there and i think the fact sometimes uh things that are free can create monsters and uh, not that we call it anyone a monster but it, it just um absolutely does it is thought-provoking in terms of, uh, you know, part of my role is to bring the education out there and and say, well, actually, you can take responsibility of your health, and it can be quite easy to do with a bit of knowledge and power. So, yeah, I think there is conditioning. I think there's culture there. I do think there needs to be a shift. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think I'd agree with that. So outside of your day-to-day role with Revive, when you're improving people's health and, and helping people to live longer and live healthier what what do you do what do you like to do or is it all encompassing oh what do i like to do? i like to be outside to be honest um anything where i am outside be it a beach or a rainy park i don't care as long as i'm surrounded by trees hills fresh air and um, so i do like hiking i do like walking um kayaking i've got a couple of sea kayaks at my parents in blackpool that i like to go in there steal every now and again um and yeah so you know they're, they're the things anything outside uh i am you know i do like being around nature it just clears me it's good for my mental health massively um and yeah i think um the other thing i've just started writing my first novel <laughs> well planning the plan part writing the plan part of my first novel so uh it's not a scientific novel it's a fiction <laughs> i just thought i'd uh yeah what's 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 the premise of that what's the story behind that oh it's uh it's completely off topic but yeah it's um it's a it's a victoria it's a scandal uh victorian scandal it's a victorian sex scandal actually that really occurred um but i want to sort of put a bit of fictional element in there and give it a go bring it to life in a in a way bring the characters to life so um it is quite a controversial uh victorian Set scandal that involved the royal family, actually. So oh. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll see how that goes down. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Let's let's see when that's published. 
<laughs> is that the goal for, for the for this lockdown is it is the latest lockdown for to crack on with writing your writing your novels it's definitely this year's goal i don't think uh, i'll get too far i'm being hopeful the lockdown isn't the whole year so yeah. <laughs> hopeful that the vaccination can be rolled out uh, effectively enough to allow us to return a little bit more to normality and um, but yeah it's definitely my goal this year any holidays that i have this year i'll definitely want to it, it needs to be somewhere you know inspiring nature wise so i can just crack on with that awesome um so thanks so much for taking your time for this session uh michael it's been really interesting and and i'll be honest i've learned loads about supplementation nutrition um having dabbled in various diets over the years the latest of which was plant focused which has ceased recently to go back to eating meat for that balance so it's it's reassuring to know that it's probably the right move for myself to kind of eat meat and Hey, you're, you're a medical practitioner, so I'll literally quote you to say, no, Michael said. Well, just remember, it's, it's grass-fed, free-range, wild Absolutely. Organic. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but no, all, all jokes aside, thank you so much for your time today. I do normally finish these podcasts on two questions, one of which uh, will be, what advice would you give to your younger self? Well, that's a question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I would probably stress that literally – Knowledge literally is a gateway to the world, I think. Um, I always like to learn new things and, you know, I didn't really see its power until later on in my career. And I think just, you know, someone that was underconfident, uh, knowledge was definitely an armour that I've been able to overcome that. And, uh, you know, I think just making sure, you know, uh, enough to have uh, in whatever situation you're in and learn from other people as well and just accept that that's learning i think knowledge is the key to a lot yeah and i probably wouldn't have followed it yeah that that was literally what i was going to ask would you have listened to that advice and and yeah it sounds like probably not and it's interesting the amount of people that say this is the advice i give myself but equally it's also good to see how many people say but i'd never have listened to it it's like there's this thing where most people recognize they have to learn the lessons the hard way themselves which is human nature I guess. I was too excited about getting into a pub at 18 (laughs) at that time of my life so (laughs) I'm glad I've been 360 it worked out well. (laughs) Yeah no back to the future stuff this this side bumping into each other. Um, The last question just to finish and wrap up the show is what's your best leadership lesson you've ever learned? Um, Probably you know building real trust within the the team or whoever you're working with uh it's so fundamental you know allowing them to trust them to take on tasks themselves do it in their way deliver in their way that way you know you can build a great relationship you know how each other works and i think the best thing is you learn back to the knowledge thing you know you're able to learn how each other works you might learn new ways of doing things and i think you know I think that building that trust and allowing it to be nurtured is is probably one of the best leadership sort of lessons. But that's really interesting, and and I'm going to ask. I'm going to just mention one thing on that point is um, recently introduced user manuals. So when you're working with a team, it's a one page document. I learned it. I read it in a in a book once and um, implemented it a couple of companies, which is just how best to work with you. So I know there's certain certain quirks for people, but to get the best out of me, this is this is how how I work this is what ticks my boxes and this is what pisses me off to be brutally honest and I think having those types of documents and those open frank conversations are a really powerful way to to build better teams because then you can work better together um, to the strengths of the personalities involved 
there's a lot of companies using disk profiling and things like this to really um, get to know, you know, so there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, everything's out there on the table, really. And I yeah. think it, it does help. Uh, it certainly has helped in my career. Yeah, absolutely. No, listen, thank you, Michael. I'm really excited about everything that's going on with Revive and, yeah, the genetics and supplementation, especially as I, I, I re-enter exercise and training towards triathlons and things like that. It's, it's certainly ticks a lot of boxes for me so i will be in touch and and, and check it out <laughs> yeah, absolutely I, i'm now going i need to check my genetic profile to see what's best supplementation things like that for me as opposed to just blindly going down and following the diet um, but thanks for your time today make sure to check out our community where we help people to network learn new skills and develop them and their business thanks for listening to the simply people podcast before we go show some love for what we're doing by leaving us a review on your podcast platform or sharing the episode with a friend Tune in for our next episode where we'll be speaking with another amazing guest. Michael, thanks a lot. Thanks. Speak to you soon. You've been listening to the Simply People podcast.